listening to Harvard Real Estate Review podcast. Subscribe to comments, insights, analytics, and all things real estate. Welcome to the very first episode of the Harvard Real Estate Review podcast series. My name is George Zhang, and along with Dixie, I'm editor emeritus of the Harvard Real Estate Review. The Review is the university's flagship annual journal that provides a forum for Harvard faculty, students. And scholars to publish their research and engage in meaningful cross-disciplinary conversations. Beginning this fall, in order to further our impact year-round beyond the print publication, we are thrilled to launch a series of online contents, including articles and podcasts, that sit at the intersection of real estate, technology, design, and innovation. This is Dixie Wu. Very happy to launch this podcast series. PropTech has been the buzzword in real estate for the past few years. People are looking for ways to disrupt this traditional industry, whether through revolutionizing ways of living, changing mode of operation, or coming up with new models of investment. Post the 2008 financial crisis, disruptions known as housing and home building 2.0, such as prefabrication. 3D printing and smart homes came to the foreground of this industry. As they always say, with crises and challenges comes opportunities. Since the COVID pandemic, willingly or unwillingly, the social norm and ways of living is changing faster than ever. For today's episode, we will take a closer look at the macroscopic trends and how investors and businesses tap into these changes. So we'd like to introduce Irina Papumava. A recent graduate of the Harvard Business School MBA program, previously a director and principal at Boston Consulting Group Digital Ventures, and currently a chief operating officer at Garden Direct, Irina has a passion for figuring out what makes innovative ventures succeed. Having helped numerous Fortune 100 companies launch and scale digital businesses, and now leading a direct-to-consumer insurtech venture, she worked on a comprehensive guide for investing in real estate tech entitled. Picking winners and losers in prop tech, published in our HRER issue number eight. That issue, in some ways, served as an inspiration for coming together for more real-time conversations on prop tech, like this one. Joining Irina are three industry experts from a multitude of areas, including Chris Herbert, managing director of the Harvard Joint Center of Housing Studies, David Gerster, VP and investor at JLL Spark Venture Fund, as well as Nicholas Donahue, CEO and founder at Atmos, an innovative startup aiming to disrupt the home building industry. Without further ado, Irina, the floor is yours. We have an amazing show for you today, and an amazing lineup of guests. Our topic is real estate tech 3.0 opportunities and disruption in post-COVID reality. The human and business impact of COVID-19 pandemic on real estate and prop tech continues to unfold globally as we speak today in October 2020. We have a great conversation in store for you with perspectives from diverse ecosystems. And to kick things off, let's hear introductions from our incredible guests themselves. Hi, folks. I'm Chris Herbert. I'm the managing director of Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies.、Uh, we are a joint center between the Graduate School of Design and the Kennedy School of Government,、uh, reflecting the fact that we take a multidisciplinary look at the state of housing. Uh, we are demographers, planners, public policy experts, economists,、uh, and our mission is to raise awareness of housing issues and to inform policy, advocacy, and industry, and to train and inspire the next generation of housing leaders. So I'm really 
pleased to be with you today for this podcast. Hi, I'm David Gerster. I'm excited to be here. I'm an investor with the JLL Spark Global Venture Fund. Uh, We are an early stage commercial real estate technology fund uh, embedded inside of JLL, the Fortune 500 uh, commercial real estate services firm. Our basic thesis is that uh, a lot of what we call technology in commercial real estate is really kind of stuck in the Stone Age. so much of it is just overdue for modernization. Uh, and that's a pretty broad set of stuff uh, that is really just crying out for an upgrade. And that is the, the fundamental thesis of the fund. Uh, we're closing in on two dozen investments. We've uh, been around for uh, a little over two years. Uh, and I've been an investor with the fund the whole time. Hello, uh, I'm Nick Donahue, uh, CEO and co-founder of Atmos. We handle the entire home building process all online. When you think about building a custom home today, uh, you think about this scattered process from going to Zillow for your land, some architect or architectural site for your floor plan, Hauser Angie's List where you vet four or five different builders. What we're doing is bring together the scattered process into one place um, where we step the customer through the entire journey from picking their lot, understanding what's buildable on that lot, making changes to the floor plan, understanding pricing, and then finally matching with the builder that best fits that project. Um, we're backed by some of the top investors in the world, including JLL Spark uh, and David specifically. Uh, and then we recently, as of a few months ago, launched in Raleigh, Durham, and Charlotte, and are doing our first dozen homes. Um, thank you. Thank you, Chris. No doubt, we're living through turbulent economics time in real estate right now. But this recession is different from 2008. During the crisis in 2008, the housing market was overbuilt and overleveraged. Can you help us understand what is happening in the current real estate environment? In what ways is it different from 2008? And in what ways do you think, um, uh, what is at stake uh, in 2020? Yeah, this is absolutely a very different circumstance for housing than it was in 2008. You know, in the Great Recession, housing really led the, the us into the into the recession due to the uh, overextension of credit, which led to people being highly leveraged, which led to housing values being inflated beyond their true values. And so when that uh, bubble burst, it brought down uh, the home building industry, it brought down the lending industry, and with it, the broader economy. And it took a long time for housing to dig out of that excess supply and the damage done. This time, as we head into the recession, housing isn't a cause of the problem at all, and in fact, the pandemic has really highlighted the importance of home and led to a resurging demand for particularly single-family homes. And so we're at a point now uh, in the building cycle where over the last 10 to 15 years, we really have underbuilt how much housing we need. So we're coming in with tight supply. Our credit has been uh, very carefully meted out over this period of time. So people are not over leveraged. Housing prices have been going up. So we come into the pandemic with housing uh, in tight situation, uh, meaning undersupply, prices rising, and we've had a renewed demand for for homes. And so one of the really surprising aspects of uh, the the economic outcomes from the pandemic is while housing had a sharp downturn in the first two months, and there was a lot of concern about what would happen to this important part of the economy, the bounce back has been remarkable. And so now if we look at things like new home sales, uh, single family starts, existing home sales, 
all of these things now are not only back above pre-pandemic levels, but they're back above levels where they were a year ago. So I think really we see housing as a real strength right now in the economy. And given the fact that um, we have a demographic wave of folks, the millennials who are heading into their 30s, we expect the next uh, few years to be very strong for housing, particularly uh, with Chairman Powell of the Fed saying that he expects uh, interest rates to remain very low until 2023, which will also help fuel the housing market. And do you think this is as simple as sort of Econ 101, um, supply and demand, you know, uh, lower supply, um, higher prices, or do you think there are additional undercurrents that are impacting um, this particular situation right now? Well, um, you know, certainly there, there is a, that, as you put it, the simplistic, we have tight supply, we have high demand, prices are going up. Uh, I think we have to unpeel why it is we have such tight supply if we want to understand what's driving that and how do we remedy it. Uh, there's been a lot of attention on the regulatory barriers to housing, particularly restrictive zoning, uh, tight building codes and the like that have made it very difficult to build new housing. Uh, that's a piece of it, as is uh, the fact that the supply of labor has been very tight in the residential construction sector, making it hard for builders to ramp up. Um, the other big factor has just been the fact that land prices have gone up enormously, particularly along the coast and in other uh, areas where the economy has been strong, uh, driven by intellectual sectors. You know, places like uh, Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado have joined the ranks of markets that are really tight. So it is simple supply and demand to some extent, but I think we have to uh, really look at those supply constraints and what we can do to help uh, to expand supply. And I think our conversation today about PropTech is one way in which we can really dig into uh, new solutions to help expand supply, and particularly expand supply of affordable housing, which is so hard to build given these constraints. Indeed. Uh, I'd love to jump in here um, for a comment. Uh, so, one, I mean, some of the things that we're also seeing is just like the pure mass migration happening from SF in New York, and Austin specifically is one of the largest places where people are moving from SF at least to. Um, and so I think the demand side, a small portion of that is th these people moving into these spaces, um, most of which are looking to build newer custom homes and such. And uh, I, I think on the supply side, a big piece of it is uh, there's a lot of job insecurity going on with COVID. And a lot of people are pulling their homes off the market, which is making this weird dynamic where like prices are skyrocketing just because there isn't much on, on the market. And not just because of the demand side, but partially because people really don't know what's going on right now in there. Are scared to like jump out of a, a home um, and then go get a new mortgage for a new home. Indeed, quite uh, quite turbulent, quite complex uh, situation. Uh, David, as a technology real estate investor, you're constantly meeting with startups in the prop tech space. It allows you to have a real time bird's eye view of the real estate tech market uh, in general. Can you share with us uh, the investor perspective on current prop tech trends and what real estate investors are looking for in terms of new approaches, technologies, and potentially new paradigms? I'd say in general, um, I'm certainly more open as an investor to uh, earlier stage investments that have a strong uh, post-COVID thesis. Uh, certainly Atmos is an example of that. Um, that was an example of um, an early investment, maybe a little bit earlier than we typically do, uh, where we really believed in 
the market they were addressing and the vision of the founder. Um, some other examples, uh, you know, I've been looking at some early stage robotics companies, uh, you know, looking at the cleaning thesis post COVID, um, you know, before that was maybe not quite at the top of my list. Um, say in general, you know, the effect of the pandemic on the economy has been kind of tough for some slightly more mature startups. So maybe startups that had raised a series B previously, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, maybe they had to do a layoff in the wake of the pandemic. Um, and that presents a challenge. You have uh, a lot of stakeholders in the company, you have the investors and the employees and the founders, um, who had all sort of pegged their hopes on, uh, you know, a previous valuation of a, of a previous financing, and that might need some adjustment. Um, and so I think that's another, I think that also points in the direction of, you know, maybe being us being open to stuff that's a little bit earlier stage. I will certainly say that the post COVID thesis is first and foremost in my mind. Um, and, at a front row seat for how that's playing out among our portfolio. Um, so we have a company uh, in our portfolio, VergeSense. They make a uh, occupancy sensor that mounts on the ceiling and counts people in a privacy friendly way. Um, they have seen an uptick in demand. People want to know uh, how many uh, people want to know how many people are in their building. They want to know where they are. Uh, they want to know if the building is being utilized. They also want to know if there's any concerns they should have about clustering, if there are specific areas that uh, should be cleaned more often, et cetera. Um, you know, we invested in a company called OpenSpace. Uh, they gather imagery of the interior of your building uh, while it's under construction, typically on like a weekly cadence. And the idea there is that you can keep tabs on the progress of your job site uh, and keep everyone in sync uh, while promoting social distancing on the job site, because now you just have one person who goes and gathers the imagery uh, that several people can look at. Um, they've seen an uptick in demand. Uh, we're investors in a company called Disruptive Technologies. Uh, they make small battery powered sensors that enable a wide range of solutions, including um, smart cleaning or cleaning validation, right? So being able to detect um, when a bathroom, uh, the level of usage in a restroom or when a restroom has been cleaned, um, you know, being able to do, being able to detect if other areas have been cleaned. This is actually uh, something that is uh, front of mind for a lot of big uh, corporations post COVID. So yeah, I'd say that certainly uh, the change has been, um, COVID has certainly changed our focus as investors. And I think it's also made us open to doing earlier investments than maybe we normally would have done. And why is that? Can you talk about the timing and stages? Yeah, well, I'd say um, it's interesting. If you look at our portfolio, um, you know, when we started out in mid-2018, um, we were kind of dipping our toe in the water. We started off with some early, you know, we had a bit of an earlier focus, more seed, Series A, uh, over time, I think we got more comfortable investing uh, slightly later stage. And so I'd say it went from 
that to maybe series A, series B, and now maybe the pendulum is swinging a little bit back for us. Um, that's a bit of a generalization, uh, right? There's, there's always going to be outliers in this distribution, but again, I think that, um, post COVID it's just been much more about what is the post COVID thesis versus, uh, trying to see things through the lens of, you know, financing stage. Thanks. Nick, one of the biggest trends in real estate is the notion of traditional house building process um, and model uh, is challenged in the COVID environment. Can you tell us about how Atmos approaches this challenge and what your team is building? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that most things are moving online. I mean, this has been happening with for a long time with Tesla for cars and open door for buying a home. Uh, but I definitely think COVID has sped up that process. Um, and, and one of the biggest things is like most of these custom and spec builders that you would usually go to, to build a new home um, or a custom home do don't have online processes and aren't the most tech savvy. Um, and so we've been focused on how do we kind of enable them and partner with them to uh, be the front end of their experience that allows someone to go through and understand what's possible on a given lot, um, transact in that lot, and then see how the pricing lays out um, within the builder lined up in the back end. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is like moving these people online and helping that process as well. Um, and then I think on top of that, you see a lot of the, as we mentioned, the migration happening with techies moving from SF. Uh, and these are the people who want to be doing things online. Uh, unlike the traditional process. And so it's it's lended well uh, to what we're doing. Um, and you guys started working on this um, idea well before COVID. I'm curious, how has COVID accelerated, impacted, or potentially pivoted what you guys were doing and how you were appro approaching um, sort of customer needs? Yeah, um, a, a big portion of that was um, before COVID, I mean, we, we hadn't launched until roughly January or February, where we had, had a, a soft launch. Um, and at that time, like the, the housing market was pretty hot, especially the home building side, and most builders had tons of demand. And so a lot of people weren't wanting to partner with us. Um, and I think it still was your traditional, seeing as emerging markets, your tra traditional customer um, who is pretty picky, looking for uh, every little thing. Uh, and for post-COVID, uh, with everyone be being forced to go online, a lot of these builders kind of froze and didn't really know what to do because uh, people weren't meeting in person anymore, especially for the first few months. Um, and, and so they weren't sure where their next customer was going to come from. And so we had saw this like huge increase in demand from a lot of these builders uh, and it, it, it transitioned well uh, into once COVID has died down a little bit, or at least people are getting more used to going back to in-person, there's still have the online processes, which lend themselves well, as I mentioned, to the people who are migrating from SF and such. Great. As you all mentioned, a big trend in housing and home building is the mass migration uh, of people because of the work from home experiment genie out of the bottle. Um, how much of an impact do you think this trend will have on the housing market going forward? Um, and is it a net positive outcome for people and businesses in the long run? 
Well, maybe I'll take it. You know, Rena, I can go ahead. Good. Um, if you want to start, David, we can edit this out, right? <laughs> go ahead. David. Yeah, we can we can edit this out. Irina, do you want to maybe ask a question again, and then I can answer it, or start be the first one to answer? A big trend in housing and home building, as you all mentioned, is the mass migration uh, of people because of the work from home experiment, so-called the genie being out of the bottle. How much of an impact do you think this trend will have on the housing market in the future? And is this a net positive for people, businesses, and investors? Yeah, so when JLL Spark was uh, looking at Atmos, uh, that whole thesis was definitely <laughs> looming very large in our mind. Um, you know, we are being put through this mandatory uh, nationwide, really global work from home experiment. Uh, and I think the results are mostly positive. You know, you had Mark Zuckerberg predicting back in May that, uh, you know, half of Facebook and it's 48,000 people would be working remotely within five to 10 years. Um, you had Twitter saying that, you know, their entire workforce could work from home if they wanted to. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg actually did an internal survey at Facebook, um, presumably a pretty large sample size, although, you know, obviously it's a tech co company, so there's some bias there. But the results were that um, about 40% of Facebook's workforce was interested in a full-time remote work. Um, and 75% of that 40% said they'd be looking to move to another place. And 62% of that 75% of that 40% <laughs> said they'd be interested in um, moving outside a big city. So you do all that math, it works out to about 20% of Facebook's workforce uh, indicated that they would be willing to move uh, to a smaller city and work from home full time. Now, you know, that's probably the upper bound for the macro trend that we're seeing, right? But even if it's half of that or a third of that or whatever, I think we're still looking at um, a pretty major change to how people work and where people live. Um, and so that was definitely part of our thesis that, you know, almost overnight post COVID, um, the value of buildable land and housing uh, in and around these uh, smaller cities um, really experienced this, this step function increase. Um, you know, there's also things going on with people's preferences, right? So post-COVID, you know, uh, you've actually seen a bump in demand overall because uh, people want somewhere that they can sort of hunker down, right? Um, and that points to a house uh, instead of an apartment. Um, you know, I also think that even pre-COVID, just the expense of housing uh, in the largest cities has been an issue. And so to put things in perspective, uh, there was just an article that came out the other day about how San Fran rents are down 20% year over year, uh, down to 2,800 a month for a one bedroom, right? Uh, well, for 2,800 a month, um, you can actually use Atmos to build um, a 2,800 square foot, three bedroom, two bath house in Raleigh uh, 
Um, and you know, that disparity is still there, right? That, um, that difference in, uh, the cost of, of housing is, is still there. Um, and so, uh, and again, I think a lot of people post COVID are asking, why am I living in a big city and paying all this rent if the density of the city has now become more of a liability than an asset? So those were kind of the macro trends we were looking at. Um, certainly it's interesting to think about the opportunity in some of these, uh, smaller cities. Excellent. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I agree uh, largely with what Dave is describing. I think on the margin, what we're going to see is that there's going to be much more work from home than there has in the past. I think all of us can look at our organizations and, and see that we've had much more experience now with this and see that it can work. Um, my own sense is that, you know, his own math, that uh, the 40, the 75%, the 60%, the 75%, the 40% of the share of people who are going to work from home full-time and leave the city is is a fraction of the total. And we're probably gonna see much more are people who work from home part of the time. So we're not gonna see a, a, an overall divorce of where the metropolitan area where people work and where they live. But it does mean if I'm only commuting into the office, say three days a week and not five days a week, I can tolerate a longer commute. So I think it's definitely going to, to give an impetus to demand for housing that's further from the center. This is not the end of cities, though. There's a reason why people like living in San Francisco. It's an amazingly beautiful city. It has amazing quality of life, an amazing number of amenities. That's not going to go away. And so certainly once the pandemic is over and our ability to gather and our, our feel, feeling of safety gathering is there, there will still be a demand for living in San Francisco. But it will, on the margin, be less. And it will push some demand uh, to the outskirts of, of cities and to some extent for another group of people further away. Uh, one thing I'd also say is that um, this is really exacerbating or highlighting the difference between those who have and those who do not have. And so much of these tech workers who have lots of income have an ability to pick and choose where they go. One of the ways this is playing out too is in very strong demand for second homes. So I might keep my place in San Francisco, but have a place in Sun Valley, Idaho too. And I know I can, when I, I am working from home, I can be off in Idaho. But this is, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, very much at the upper end of the market impact and not the folks at the bottom of the market. Um, and really to your question about whether this is good or bad, on the most part, I think it is a positive, right? What we're going to do is give people greater choice, free them up from the kind of affordability constraints of having to be close to where they work. They're going to, they're going to be able to access more housing, more space. And we're going to get more people off the road. So I think we're going to have less commuting, less uh, carbon being produced. All of that, I think, produces a better quality of life for us and for the planet. Yeah, and um, access and affordability is is a pain point in real estate and has been for a while. Um, with COVID now um, and so much technology um, trying to uh, attempt to address these questions, um, what is the role of prop tech and real estate technology in addressing the issue of affor affordability and equality? Um, how much of an impact can um, a, a startup create? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to touch a point on the mass migration um, stuff, mainly because we had built this tool, uh, this rent calculator that I mentioned before, uh, 
uh, and David had hinted at and when he had spoken, um, where you could see what you were building or what, what, what put your rent in SF, New York or LA and then an emerging market like Austin or Raleigh um, and see what you could build versus buy. Uh, and we had saw this, especially in the first like month or two of COVID, a huge uh, like virality effect with it where 40,000 people in three days had used it. And we saw this like trend of where people were wanting to move to, especially from the major cities with the top ones being Austin, Denver, Portland, Salt Lake, um, Nashville, Atlanta, Miami. Um, and I, I think it, it very early on was hinting at the, the migration that we're talking about. Um, and I think this is a great thing, at least short term, for these major cities, uh, or not for the major cities, but for the emerging markets, and then uh, short term, not as good for major cities. But the way I kind of see it, especially with a lot of the major cities, is it's more of like a brush fire, especially with SF, where you have many gold rushes that have happened throughout time. And I think what it does is it, it, it gets rid of a lot of the brush um, in the city that allows for new innovation to happen, for new people to be able to afford to move into the city. Um, and hopefully this next wave, whatever it might be, whether it's crypto or um, something we don't know about yet, I think you'll see that these uh, cities will reemerge again when, uh, within the next 10 or so years. And Chris talked about how many folks opt in to, to build or buy second homes. Um, Nick, in your work, and specifically as we talk about affordability and equality, do you see uh, your customers uh, going after their building their second homes? Or are we talking about, you know, a first-time home buyers, builders being able to, for the first time, uh, have their own home that they can afford? Yeah, um, we've seen a mix of both um, pretty evenly, actually, um, where a lot of these people uh, have started out uh, renting and their next step would have probably been buying an apartment downtown. Uh, and because that's not the case, uh, they're in, they end up moving out of the city. And because of the dynamic, dynamics we had mentioned before, of like, this increase in uh, demand, but not much supply. A lot of people are, are looking for alternatives and building has become that where, especially if you're more of a picky buyer, are able to get exactly what you want, whether that's more space, maybe a good work at home office um, and uh, in a location that's near walkable trails or whatever it might be. Um, I, I think we're seeing that people are becoming more picky with what they want their space to be. And so it's all types of buyers that are moving into building beyond just your uh, typical second uh, time home buyer. Yep. And do you also see that this kind of work, being picky, potentially designing and creating your own uh, blueprints of these homes, th does this approach have ripple effect on other industries? Um, I'm thinking design, interior design. Um, what are there maybe adjacent um, trends are you observing as a ripple effect of this trend? Yeah, I definitely think it's disrupting the architecture industry a bit more. Um, where traditionally people would go to an architect, spend forty, fifty thousand dollars um, to get a, a plan created when there's tens of thousands of plans that exist already online, um, and most of the time these architects are even just taking one of those plans and making minor adjustments that make them fit with what you're what you want. Um, and so I think this is the first part of the market that's being disrupted uh, where people now can, they have access to plans that are pretty accurate to what they're looking for. And the adjustments they're making are quite minor um, and it reduces the cost of building a custom home pretty drastically, giving access to a lot more people that 
usually would not be thinking about it. So as we speak about affordability, we're observing sort of broad democratization of overall costs from architecture to design to actually building it, uh, which ties ties really nicely in this in this question that we're that we're tackling here. Shifting gears into kind of broader topic of innovation, you know, besides mass migration. In what other ways COVID is shaping our way of living, housing, home building in 2020 and beyond? And what are some of the examples you came across that demonstrate that technology is expanding the front frontier of what is possible um, in housing or creating new products? Yeah, I'd love to jump in here. Um, when I think what we're seeing is a lot of people being a bit more fluid with not just their work or where they're living, um, and, and with that, uh, there's some companies that are spinning up like uh, Zero Down specifically um, that allows you to both build wealth um, while still being fluid with where you live. So the way it works is uh, basically they'll buy your house, the house you want to buy outright, and then you pay almost like a rent to own model, but rather they put it into a REIT and you build credit out of that REIT. So you're getting partial ownership of the whole network of homes, not just one. And I think it lends itself pretty well to the dynamic going on where people are, are being a bit more fluid with where they want to be, um, whether that's uh, because they want more space in, outside of a city or they're building a second home that they can go from SF and to the suburbs. Um, and I, I think this is not just a short-term trend, but long-term with the next generation being a lot more fluid as well. Um, outside of that, I think there, there have been a few interesting things that we've seen um, where uh, kind of like group buying, where, for instance, there's a, a group of founders up in one of which was MySpace and co-founder of um, uh, Casper, where there is a group of 10 of them looking to uh, buy a massive plot of land up in the Hudson Valley and then subdivide it and go live together um, in their own little like community. And we've uh, have helped now a few families um, and groups of friends do that as well. Uh, through the platform. So uh, I think there's this interesting, interesting dynamic of these like micro communities coming up. It would be really interesting to follow the development of those stories for sure. Truly, truly innovative stuff here. David and Chris, um, anything on your radar? I was just going to comment. It's interesting to see, um, you know, the examples Nick just mentioned kind of focus on single family. Right. And I think, um, there's a theme of low density, right? There's, there's more demand for lower density. Um, you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago when I was um, just starting out with the fund, you know, there were a bunch of uh, co-living type of companies on our radar, right? And the idea was to, um, you know, buy a property in a less expensive part of town, say in San Fran, Maybe it's, you know, a conversion of an industrial building or something like that. Um, and, you know, the idea was to uh, kind of pack people into almost this dorm style of living, right? And that was sort of uh, the, the path to, uh, I guess, ameliorating the, the housing crunch, right? And now post-COVID, it's interesting to see that, um, you know, a lot of the emphasis is on lower density which itself, the whole concept of density in housing policy is itself a whole can of worms, right? It is interesting to think about how COVID has, um, has impacted that. 
No, uh, Arina, you were asking about other ways in which COVID has affected the housing market, aside from the, the my changes in migration patterns and living locations. You know, I think part of what's happened is it, it's accelerated uh, other uh, uses of technology that were already happening. But, you know, as David had said in his opening remarks, so there's a lot of ways in which the housing sector broadly writ is kind of stuck in its old ways. And so we have, you know, the, the process of, of marketing and selling a house, which has been very much an in-person process of a realtor showing you around. There had been online tours available, but during COVID, when being together in the same room was uh, you know, obviously highly risky, that led to a lot more virtual showings. It led to a lot more adoption of virtual appraisals, of docu-signs, of other ways of having these uh, uh, process be touchless. And I think what, what's happened is that both on the supply side, you know, home builders and realtors, and on the demand side, customers have found that these technologies are actually pretty effective, save a lot of time and hassle. And so um, I think we're gonna see uh, the ways in which all of these uh, technologies are just going to be adopted and used much more extensively than they were. It's a trend that was already there, but I think it will be uh, ex you know, very much uh, ex extended by the experience with COVID. Um, and just one other thing I'll put on the table too, that's I think an important piece here is people's attention to the healthiness of their homes. And that's going to point to various systems and technologies that have to do with you know, air quality, and the touchless systems and the like. And I, one of the things we've seen is that the demand for new housing has been really strong coming out of the pandemic. And one of the, the uh, theories, it's uh, yet, yet to be proven, I would say, but is that people's sensitivity to having the highest quality systems in the house mean that they have a, they have a preference for buying new. So there's lots of ways in which I think COVID is gonna affect um, housing, uh, the housing market uh, going forward. Yeah. And do you guys think we're living through the end of open floor plan for office spaces and a bit of return into the Don Draper come into my office type of setup? Or do you think we're <laughs> really tell? You know, can I just say like the whole um, open office plan, I've always sort of been a bit of a curmudgeon about that. So that would not necessarily be a bad thing if we went away from the open office plan in, in my personal view. Um, yeah, you're, you know, there's the, I think there's the broader issue of just how many people do you want per square foot in your office, right? Um, and so it's interesting to think about that dynamic of, you know, I think landlords are gonna have to be more flexible on terms given shifts in demand for office space. Right. At the same time, I think occupiers are going to need more square feet per employee. Um, and this is something that I'm seeing, you know, as I as I look at companies. Right. There's um, there are companies that will help you kind of recalc what your floor plan should look like and do it in a, in a quick and easy way and do it with like. Uh, the constraint of, you know, six foot social distancing rings around each seat. Right. Um, so that's certainly something we're seeing. Um, so it's interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. Certainly the winning strategy is no longer to pack as many people as you possibly can into, uh, you know, into an office space. Certainly we've seen WeWork, which was already struggling. Right. 
I mean, WeWork's whole premise was high density um, office space, right? And that that has clearly gone away. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think people are going to want some sort of barrier and also, you know, more space between desks. And I'm glad you mentioned WeWork because I wanted to ask all three of you um, a bit about the future of co-working and co-living. The reason is in the eighth issue of HR ER, we talked quite a bit about WeWork and, and the demise uh, of the company. Um, of course, the, the, the big kind of proposition there was, you know, that this is a technology company. It's a community. It's software. Yes, with a bit of a real estate component. Now, uh, you know, David, I think you said, you know, that that's over. Do you think that proves... Um, or disproves the argument that it is not a software company, uh, or maybe it is, and maybe there's a future for co-working like WeWork. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, as an investor, I think the big lesson for me from WeWork, and I'm, I'm not trying to pile on, right? They've obviously been through some challenging times. Uh, <laughs> so um, not trying to indulge in, in Scheidenfreude, but for me, the big lesson from looking at WeWork is that you have to earn your tech multiple, right? And so um, as an investor, you have to be a little bit cautious that um, the startup you're investing in is actually using technology to be more productive, that they're actually getting some mechanical advantage from technology and that it's not just um, sort of legacy economics uh, sort of dressed up with some tech, right? And, you know, uh, there's certainly a lot of other things going on with WeWork, including just the level of risk that they were willing to take on, especially, you know, the level of lease risk they were willing to take on. Um, but again, for me, that's the big takeaway uh, as an investor is, um, you know, the companies that get the tech multiple should have like tech as like the fundamental core of their business model. Yeah, to add in here, um, in terms of co-working in general, I, I don't think we're going to fully see it go away. I think it will just shift how it exists. Like, I know there's uh, a lot of the larger companies like Facebook and Google are looking to do this, this hub model where um, in a lot of these emerging cities, they have almost like smaller campuses. And something I could definitely see in the future is, um, as I mentioned before, this idea of like a micro community coming into existence and that maybe uh, there's co-working spaces instead of a um, like a, a neighborhood uh, like uh, building, and so the ability to have like the like your group of friends or whoever you're choosing to live with in this micro community have a central place to work, or even maybe camp campuses for companies like Facebook and such, where um, families can go and live with other Facebook families and co-work in that central space. Uh, I think is something that could emerge, um, but this is definitely just a new idea. 
Yeah, it certainly sounds like um, the idea of communal living or co-living is not dead and is uh, being taken to kind of the, the new heights. I think question still remains whether there is a tech multiple to those businesses, co-living or even to some degree, potentially remote co-working spaces. It'll be interesting to see how, how this trend unfolds. Yep. To wrap up, um, how can companies start recovering by learning from the current pandemic um, and perhaps taking targeted measures to, to emerge stronger in the medium term, if not in the short term? I do think one thing that employees are looking for is just, you know, a sense of safety and security. Um, and I asked myself personally, do I ever want to be in an elevator with another human being again? And, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is to that question. Um, and so I do think that figuring out how to get a touchless lane uh, to the employee's desk, right? I think that's uh, something we are uh, interested in investing in, broadly speaking. Right. There's a whole issue of um, how do you get access to the building? Right. There's all there's uh, some really interesting companies that are seeking to modernize access control um, using Bluetooth on your smartphone. Um, you know, when I get into the elevator, I don't want to have to push a button. Right. I mean, that concept is already right. But I think you're going to see it unified with, uh, again, Bluetooth enabled access control over time. Um, and so, you know, if you're a visitor to an office building, right, you just want to sort of wave your phone at an iPad or something and be on your way, right? You don't want to have to um, do anything that involves touching the iPad, which sounds like a small detail, right? But <laughs> it's actually pretty important uh, to the design of the system. Uh, and so uh, I do get hung up on some of these bottlenecks, right? Like, again, there's the elevator bottleneck and how do you manage that? And do people feel comfortable with that? Um, you know, there's the restroom bottleneck, right? Like, how do you manage the queue for a restroom? How many people are actually allowed in an office restroom at any one point in time? Um, I also think there's an opportunity for apps that enable contact tracing. So if you have a Bluetooth access control app that you're using to get into the building, it's not a huge leap to piggyback, um, you know, contract contact tracing functionality where everyone who's using the app, right? The apps know who's been close to who just because of Bluetooth. Um, and if someone gets sick, they can report that and then it can kind of cascade down to the people who were um, most at risk from being close to that person. Um, and so, uh, but again, I have to like, <laughs> I'm just one person, right? I'd, I'd say like, I want to feel comfortable that this sort of stuff has really been thought through before I start, um, going back to going back to work. Um, and again, there's the, there's the issue of touchless. There's the issue of how far apart are the desks. There's the issue of, you know, to improve air quality, which was raised before. We are incidentally looking at a couple of startups in that space. Um, 
And so it's tough. I, I'm maybe on the conservative end of the, the spectrum here, but um, I think it's going to be a long time before things are back to normal uh, in terms of uh, employees going into the office. You know, I would just um, say that I think there's the short run and the long run, and I don't know how long the short run is, but so the short run is the period of time when we're still bearing the scars of the pandemic and its risks and all the things David was describing in terms of what the feeling of safety being in the building. Um, we don't know yet what the future is going to be living with COVID, but uh, if we assume that two years from now, that there's a vaccine, that there's a treatment, that there's immunity that's built up, and that this is something that's in our rearview mirror, which is possible, but not necessarily uh, certain. But let's say it is. And I think people will come out of that with a heightened sense of the importance of living, in a, uh, living and working in a healthy environment, but they won't be as uh, paranoid or as cautious as they are now. And so Human beings like density. We like to be with each other. We like to be in crowded bars where there's a hubbub. We like to be shoulder to shoulder listening to music. And once we feel confident doing that again, and once we have some experience with doing that, which we've done our whole lives, I think we will find that life can go back to normal. Again, assuming that this risk of this pandemic is in our rearview mirror. But I do think what we then have is in the longer run, what's the lesson for employers going back to your question? I think the big lesson is that, in fact, remote work does work. That remote work does free up people from having to commute. It does free people up from having to be in a housing market that may be too expensive. Um, but I think the thing we haven't wrestled yet with is how do you deal with a hybrid workforce? As, you know, in David's example, where 40% of folks, and I think it was Facebook, said that they didn't want to come back to the office at all, 60% did. And I think many of us uh, both uh, appreciate the opportunity to be face-to-face -face with our co colleagues. And in fact, there's strong economic arguments for the benefits of agglomeration economies from that, uh, you know, those casual meetings and opportunities for conversation. But as an employer, then how do you balance the fact that some folks want to work remotely, either part-time or full-time, and then how do you have a meeting where some people are on Zoom and some people are in the office? Some people are having a chance to have those conversations. Some people are going to be advancing because of the fact that they have that chance to socialize and do those things. So I think there's a lot of challenges going forward with for employers to extend these opportunities to their employees at the same time building a healthy culture, making sure that there's uh, equity in terms of advancement and other opportunities for people who may not be physically present. So we have a lot to sort out. We have a lot of opportunities to make life better for folks, but um, we'll see what it what it like in practice to be much more of a hybrid workplace. Indeed, and Chris, I wanted to ask your opinion as well on a bit of the rent that perhaps adjusted rent. Um, uh, related question, which is, you know, many tenants today are experiencing sharp decline in cash flows, especially those in retail and hotel subsectors. And so, um, you know, we see a lot of uh, tenants and landlords kind of trying to work it out, negotiating rental payments. Um, there's, uh, you know, you know, there's kind of rumors or news or anecdotes of different uh, arrangements worked out. So some tenants are extending their leases in exchange for rent reductions, things like that. Um, do you see, um, you know, these uh, rent adjustment trends as something that will continue and perhaps even inspire some innovation there in how landlords and renters collaborate and negotiate? 
well, I certainly, as, as long as this pandemic is going on, uh, there's going to be a real challenge for a lot of uh, you know, retail spaces, restaurants and bars in particular. Um, office space, there's obviously a lot less demand. And, 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 and rental apartments, there's a lot of uh, economic hardship that has to be sorted through. So, you know, in the near term, I think that's, that's all going to continue to play out. Once the pandemic's over, all the things we've been talking about, which on the margin are going to reduce demand for office space, reduce demand for housing in dense locations, are going to lead to a kind of a flattening of the rent gradient as we talk about economics. So there's going to be some increased demand on the fringe, less demand in the city center. You know, Nick references, and I think it's basically going to help alleviate the price pressures and spread them out to broader market areas. So I think we are in the short run, we still have to get through the pandemic. Once we're through it, I think we're going to see rent stabilize at a different level, uh, lower in places where demand has slackened and higher in places where it shifted to. Um, and hopefully that process won't be too painful for everyone. Great. Anything else that we haven't covered in this conversation, but you guys think it's important to share with our audience? You know, I think it's interesting to think about how this trend, um, this migration trend, might play into uh, the political landscape of the United States. Um, and so, uh, certainly I think the point is well made that like cities aren't going away. Um, right. You're not going to have, uh, and the future is probably, um, going to be some sort of hybrid model, um, where it's maybe not hundred percent working from home. Right. But I do think there is going to be, um, this new mega trend of, migration uh, from large cities to, to smaller ones. Um, and so how does that play out in the American political environment where, you know, low density areas tend to have a, a pretty big say in, <laughs> in the, you know, representation in, in the federal government, right? I'm thinking of course of the, the Senate and the way the uh, electoral college votes are allocated. And so looking way, way ahead, right? And who knows what the actual, you know, net migration numbers are actually going to be. Um, but looking way, way ahead, it's interesting to think about uh, how this could play out. You know, what if you took 5% of San Francisco and New York and sort of sprinkled it, in, <laughs> sprinkled those people, um, you know, in, in these up and coming cities, uh, it's really interesting to think how that could impact the political landscape. And I don't think it needs to be, you know, an absolutely seismic change to actually um, have an impact on uh, the political process. Nick, I don't know if you had thought about this one. Yeah, there's actually one, <laughs> one something I was thinking about, uh, especially because as you touched on, a lot of these more lower density areas are um, uh, Republican and a lot of these higher density areas like New York City and SF specifically are a lot more Democratic and how that starts to scatter things. Um, so, I mean, I don't have much beyond that, but yeah, it's definitely something that has crossed my mind. Uh, but on a, on a different note, something that um, Chris had touched on was like in the short term, how um, COVID affects 
people working in offices um, and, and in general, us being us being a generation that's used to being in person and how uh, that works a lot better. And I think people, a lot of people, as you said, with 60% wanting to go back to in person uh, is going to be the common thing. Chris, anything from you? No, I, I don't think I have anything to add. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. It's uh, the um, it's it's a, a difficult situation to speculate about how, how this is going to affect us. So we right now in the middle of it, it's uh, one of the most significant and uh, uh, calamitous events I think of most of our lives. Um, but we are resilient as a species, and I would say two years from now, uh, if it's if it's gone and done, we may be moving on back to our lives faster than we think possible. But there are definitely lessons that we're going to stay with us. Um, I think you're going to see people washing their hands and wearing masks and uh, avoiding the spread of illness a lot better than we ever did in the past. And I think uh, people do appreciate their homes more than they probably did before. So, but. Uh, It'll, it'll be interesting to see, to say the least, uh, how we recover from this and, and what the long-lasting effects are. This concludes our inaugural Harvard Real Estate Review podcast episode number one, where we discussed Real Estate Tech 3.0, opportunities and disruption in post-COVID reality. Real estate developers, investors, home buyers, renters, and builders are likely to prepare for the next new normal and hopefully thrive in a different way and over varied time periods depending on their unique circumstances. No doubt, prop tech innovation will continue to play a key role in enabling and accelerating post-COVID recovery. We will continue to stay on top of these trends and insights and we'll bring these conversations to you in our next HRER podcast episode. Thank you and stay tuned.